Well, today we are <clears throat> we're going to continue to engage uh, some very important apologetics in regard to the Shabbat. And the way that we're going to do this is uh, we're going to be looking at two particular passages uh, that are found in the New Testament. And we're not going to be looking at both today. We're actually going to be looking at one, only one today, and then we'll look at the other uh, next week. But both of these passages, these are passages that mainstream Christianity will utilize as, as you're going about in the conversation of Shabbat comes up. I assure you, uh, these passages oftentimes come to the table. And they come to the table in the context that they're supporting the fact that Christianity or Christians uh, can walk away, they can abandon the Shabbat. That Shabbat really isn't relevant for Christianity today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at these particular passages uh, very, very closely to find out uh, whether or not the things that are being said or the, the common interpretation is, is accurate. Uh, because if it is, we're going to have to scrap the entire series. So, <laughs> well, we'll see uh, what this is. Now, to get started, I want to take you back to that pictogram that I showed you. And here you have a, a pair of glasses. And if you, you remember, I said this pair of glasses, it's, it's peering into a landscape. And I liken that landscape to the Word of God. But you'll notice in this pair of glasses, there are two lenses, which you would think when it's peering at the landscape, they would be the same picture. But they're not. They're completely, entirely different pictures altogether. And see... Through the one lens, we have Messianic Judaism. We have first century Judeo-Christianity that as it peers through, it looks at the landscape, it looks at the word of God, and it says, whoa, the Torah is valid. It looks and it understands that we are to make a distinction between clean and unclean, between beef and pork. It looks and it says, we're to remember the Shabbat to keep it holy. And yet, I can go to the lens Right next to it, it's contemporary, if you will, the lens of mainstream Christianity, and they can look at the exact same landscape, and they can come away with a completely different picture. In other words, I go there and I look at, it doesn't matter if I make a distinction between pork or beef, it doesn't matter, uh, well, the Torah, it's not, it's not even valid. The Torah has been done away with, and it doesn't matter if I remember the Shabbat to keep it holy. My question that I want to pose today is why? Why does mainstream Christianity have a completely different picture than first century Judeo-Christianity? And there's two words to answer that question, and that is confirmation bias. A confirmation bias. What is a confirmation bias? Well, I'm actually going to explain to you this concept, this principle, uh, through the words of Dr. Heshmat. Dr. Heshmont wrote an article, uh, it was featured in Psychology Today, and uh, let me be clear, I'm not a big fan of humanistic psychology, uh, but the work that he did here is, well, it's critical, it's vital, it's incredible, and you'll see that as, as we go through. But he asked in, in this article, he asked the question, what is a confirmation bias? And he goes on, and this is what he says. A confirmation bias occurs from the direct influence of desire on beliefs. When people would like a certain idea or concept to be true, they end up believing it to be true. 
They're motivated by wishful thinking. It's the old proverbial, I believe what I want to believe. And here's what's scary. Here's what's scary about this. The devil knows it. He knows it. One of his most effective and efficient campaigns that he runs against us. He loves to do this. He will spoon feed you all day long the things that you want to hear. He will do it. He will spoon feed you the things that your flesh desires to hear. Just think about this concept for a second. And I love what he says right at the beginning. Confirmation bias occurs from the direct influence of desire on beliefs. In other words, the dictates of your heart are determining what you believe rather than truth. Now we continue. This air, and it's amazing, he calls it what it is. He calls it an air. This air leads the individual to stop gathering information when the evidence gathered so far confirms the views one would like to be true. I want you to understand what was just said. In other words, when you embrace your desires, those compelling emotions that are so powerful and you're so passionate over as truth, because you want them to be true, Dr. Heshmat reveals something. Something happens when you do. You stop the investigation. Think about that. It's over. Your investigation is over once you've embraced the dictates of your heart as truth. Ultimately, you think about it, the desires of your heart, guess what? They become the confirmation that you need, the confirmation of your perceived reality, your perceived truth. Now, let me tell you something. When you take this concept and you start applying it to the word of God, that's when things get scary. That's when that lens that I showed you of modern-day Christianity starts to develop a picture that is completely different than its counterpart. Completely. Now he goes on and he says, Once we have formed a view, we embrace information that confirms that view while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubt on it. This is exactly what is happening to Christianity today on a spiritual level in regard to the Shabbat. I'm not saying in regard to everything. In regard to the Shabbat, you better believe it. Many, many Christians, they have formed their view. They've already have it preformed. And they're going into scripture simply to embrace that viewpoint. Shabbat's done away with. It's irrelevant. All the while, ignoring all the passages that speak contrary to it. In fact, just outright rejecting passages that condemn that ideology. The worst part of it is, is many Christians, without even knowing it, they're falling into this trap. They're falling into the trap of a confirmation bias. And, and, and they are approaching the word of God, but with a, in a state of mind. Their mind is made up. I'm simply going to read, but my mind's already made up. I'm going with my preconceived notions. I'm going to confirm those preconceived notions in the word. This is a scary thing. And you think about, they're taking the information that their pastors have been pumping into their heads, that their professors at the seminaries are pumping into their heads without being Berean. See, the Bereans went to Scripture to make sure whether these things were so. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. 
I'm not going with my preconceived notions just to prove what I already know to be true in my heart. I am supposed to be going here to extrapolate truth. That's the point of Scripture. Now he goes on and he says, Confirmation bias suggests that we don't perceive circumstances objectively. Listen to this. We pick out those bits of data that make us feel good because they confirm our prejudices. Thus, we may become prisoners of our own assumptions. Wishful thinking is a form of deception, such as false optimism. Self-deception can be like a drug, numbing you from harsh reality or turning a blind eye to the tough matter for gathering evidence and thinking. Let me tell you something. This is exactly what Satan, what Hasatan does. He goes forth and he numbs you from the harsh reality. You think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's the process of salvation. He says, godly sorrow produces repentance, and that leads to salvation. And the enemy knows it. And he knows that all he has to do is to come in as a spiritual anesthesiologist, kill the pain of godly sorrow, kill the conviction, and there will be no repentance, and there will, that person will never see salvation. He knows it. This is a reality, so the devil, he comes in, and he kills it. See, you know, the Bible talks about it so much. Godly sorrow in Ecclesiastes. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. You think about that concept. You think about uh, Psalm 19, 71. It is good that I've been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That conviction, that sorrow, we need it. In fact, in Eric's commentary, which was phenomenal, he talked about stacti and the way it's extrapolated from the tree, but it doesn't give off a good odor until it is afflicted. And you think about what is stacti? It was a part of, he told you in Exodus 3, it's a part of incense. See, only when it's beaten fine will it give off a beautiful odor. But Satan wants to tell you, spoon feed you until you don't need any of that. You don't need godly conviction. You don't need that sorrow. You just need to be told what you want to hear. This is, this is the problem. You know, I'm going to tell you, you sever that conviction, you will stop gathering information. It's just your truth. It's the natural progress. Moving on. Moving on. In sum... This is his closing statement. People are prone to believe whatever they want to believe. Seeking to confirm our beliefs comes naturally because it's the natural according to the flesh. While it feels strong and counterintuitive to look for evidence that contradicts our beliefs, this explains why, listen to, this, listen to the term he uses, opinions survive and spread. He doesn't say confirmation explains why truth survives and spread no he says this is why opinions survive and spread and i'm going to tell you this is why traditional christianity believes what it believes when it comes to the sabbath they've fallen into the deception of a confirmation bias and without even realizing it they've become accustomed to like i said approaching the word of god that the word of god there is merely there for nothing more than to confirm what it is they already believe to be true Right? And, and, and there's so many terms we could look at that, that are in line with confirmation bias. We could talk about interpolation. Interpolation is where someone takes 
It's, it's confirmation bias. They take what they want to believe is true and they force it into the text. They read something in the text that isn't there. We could talk about exegesis versus eisegesis. And eisegesis has nothing to do with Jesus. Let me tell you that. Eisegesis, same thing as interpolation. It's reading something in a text that isn't there. That's what confirmation bias is. And that brings us to the passage in question today that has fallen victim to the confirmation bias. Colossians 2.16. Paul says, let no one judge you. In food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Mashiach. You know, this is a passage that's typically interpreted, hey, I don't want to hear. If you're going to start talking to me that pork's unclean, I'm not going to listen to you. Paul already notified me. I'm on notice. I'm not going to let you judge me. Or you want to start talking about festivals and Pesachs and, and Yom Kippur's, whatever that is, and you want to start talking to me about Shabbats, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going back under the law. We've been set free from that stuff. This is how mainstream Christianity reads this passage, and that's why this passage, and, and I can tell you just personally, has come up when you start talking about the topic of Shabbat. This will come up. They will bring this to the level and say, do you not know what Paul said? Just to build upon this so you know I'm just not throwing out you know, my opinions in regard to what typically mainstream Christianity believes, I want to give you some actual commentaries on this passage. Just so you know where they stand on this. I want clarity uh, before we continue. And I'm going to take you to the Holman and New Testament commentary. And this is what it says. Apparently, some in Colossae tried to convince the believers that spirituality was based on how well they observe certain codes of behavior. Paul mentions diets, what you eat and drink, days, such as uh, festivals and new moon celebrations, Shabbat. The false teachers said that the truly spiritual maintained a particular diet and properly observed all the right holy days. And so they're looking at this in the context of what is written in the law of Moses. This is in the context. This is in regard to commandments of God. Continuing on. What about this? Is the Christian bound to strict observance of diets and days? And what is the answer? No. This is how they see it. Two passages of scripture make this clear. Hebrews 9.10 and Galatians 4.8. Now let me first say, I so appreciate when people... Uh, are attempting to perform exegesis. In other words, we're to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So they're bringing forth support for the understanding that they're explaining. Scriptural support. The problem is, is if you actually go to these passages, you go to Hebrews 9.10, it has nothing to do with Colossians 2.16 and 17. Nothing. No relationship whatsoever. It's talking about the Kohanim and their involvement with the sacrifices. That's the whole point of the the whole passage and how the Lord had changed that law in regard to who our high priest was and that Yeshua came according to the order of Melchizedek. That has nothing to do with this. I was explaining here, and it even gets even crazier to quote Galatians 4, 8 through 11 because that's a passage that's talking about pagans worshiping on pagan days has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about here in Colossians, though I appreciate 
of the attempt. And so we continue on. Here in Colossians 2.17, Paul informs us that rule-keeping, or you could say obedience, is just a shadow. There is no real spiritual substance. You understand what they just said? There is no spiritual substance to the Shabbat. There's no spiritual substance to the festivals. There's no spiritual substance to these issues with food, uh, you know, discriminating against food like pork and beef and so forth. Let me show you another commentary. The substance of the false... Now, this is from the New American Commentary. The substance of the false teaching was the ritual observance of the law. And so he's looking at Galatia. This is a commentary in Galatians 2, 16, 17. And they're saying the issue here is the observance of Torah. I mean, that's what's at the heart. The two concerns identified frequent battlegrounds in the early church. They were diet, what you eat and drink, and days, religious festivals, new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. And it continues. Some believers in more Gentile settings concerned themselves with whether to worship on the Shabbat or on Sunday. They also debated the question of participation in pagan holidays. Now, so I, I show you this commentary just to show you this is more of the same, what we found from the Holman New Testament commentary. Let me take you to another one, which I knew I would come back to it. Methades' epistle to Diognetus. So now we're getting into early church history, right? I want to show you what Methades said and how Methades literally pulled out of Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Look at what he says. But as to their scrupulosity, and he's referring to the Jews, to the Jews' scrupulosity concerning what? Meats. And their, uh, and, and their superstitions as respects to the Sabbaths. And their boasting about circumcision and their fancies about fastings and the new moons, which are utterly ridiculous and unworthy of notice. And so he is literally, he's drawing, the main component where he's drawing from is the passage in question today, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. And he identifies, these are totally ridiculous. All of these things are ludicrous. The simple point I'm making here is that traditional Christianity has taken Paul's statement that he makes in Colossians 2:16 and 17 to refer to the fact that all of these things are antiquated. They don't have any real spiritual significance. Therefore, the conclusion is, traditionally speaking, that they no longer need to be observed. These things are merely a shadow. These were a shadow, but when Yeshua comes on the scene, well, then we no longer observe these things. And let me be clear about something above all else. Make no mistake, Paul is right. Yeshua is the embodiment. He is the embodiment of all of these things. Things like the Shabbat. Things like the festivals. Just think about it for a moment. What are the festivals about? They're all about Yeshua. And I, I was dumbfounded, this was, this was quite a while ago, but I was dumbfounded having a conversation with a gal, a very wonderful person, and I, I, I somehow interjected, I saw a little door, and of course I make a bigger door. <laughs> so I saw a little door, and I started talking about Passover. And, and you know, she's, a, she's a believer of many, many years, and she's like, Passover, what is that? And I was like, you didn't know Passover's all about Jesus. She's like, What? Passover's not about Jesus, that's Jewish. I was like, Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> These, I used, the conversation was humorous, uh, uh, to say the least. 
the point of the matter is, is Paul is on to something. There is something so powerful about what is being stated here. He is the very substance of all these things. And yes, the literal came into being. And yes, our focus is on him. But the question remains is with his revelation, is Paul saying here, this is what I want to know, is he saying that, well, now we abandon these things. We no longer observe these things uh, because we're in the dispensation of Yeshua, which, which we are. The answer to that, the simple form, is absolutely not. That is not what Paul is saying at all. And so we're going to dig into this passage and we're going to exploit we're going to exploit this confirmation bias, and we're going to do what God intended us to do, and we're going to allow him to define his own word, scripture. And more, more than that, we're going to just, would you please give Paul the chance to define what he means? Just give him the chance to do that, because as you're going to see today, he does a marvelous job at doing that. The first thing I want to do here before we really get into this investigation I want to introduce you to a concept that exists in Colossians chapter 2. And that is this. The concept of inclusio, and this is more of a scholarly term, but I want to explain what an inclusio is. Notice my pair of bookends at the very end. It's a pair of bookends, and it's holding all of these books with all that material. What is it doing? It's framing it up. It's keeping it all together. I want you to think of and understand Inclusio as a pair of bookends. Because that's what it does. An author will come out and he will make a statement, the first bookend here. He will make a statement using specific concept, a specific concept, a specific idea, with specific terminology. And then he will go on in his discourse. And he will talk about all these various things that actually relate to it. And then he will end it. His conclusion will he will make that same statement, deliver that same principles using the same verbiage once again. And what happens is, is it takes this whole discourse and it frames it up into proper context. And this is what an inclusio is. And I'm going to tell you there's inclusios all over the place in scripture. One of the most probably most famous one is, is Yeshua. Speaking in Matthew chapter 5 and going all the way, that's where the inclusio begins. And it ends in Matthew chapter 7, and it's all about the Torah. There's an inclusio there. You'd be shocked, once you understand this term, that uh, inclusios are common in communication. It's a natural way to communicate. People uh, formulate inclusios without even knowing it. They do it in emails. We do it in conversations. Uh, so this is a common element, but... I bring this up because there is an inclusio in Colossians chapter 2. And understanding that is pivotal to understanding the context of what Paul is dealing with in verses 16 and 70. So, in light of this, we're going to look at this inclusio in its entirety. We're going to look at the first bookend all the way to the last bookend. I want you to see this. The inclusio begins in verse 8. And this is what we read. Paul begins, Beware! It is a warning. I love it how he begins. Now we know this is a warning. Warning. Lest anyone cheat you, and that's sulagogeo in the Greek, to cheat. And it means to lead away, to lead astray, to pull you literally quite off the path. So let no one, you could, you, the, the term could be translated as seduce. Let no one seduce you through philosophy 
and empty deceit according to what? Tradition of men. Notice, it doesn't say according to the Mosaic law. It doesn't say according to the law of Moses. It doesn't say according to the commandments of God. It says according to the tradition of men. So Paul sends this warning out. Beware of these ones. Beware of these men that are going to take you off the path. They're going to lead you astray according to their traditions. Traditions of men. According to the basic principles of the world. I'm going to say that again. According to the basic principles of the world. You're going to need to put that on a shelf for a moment. Because you're going to see it again. That statement. And not according to Mashiach. So here is the beginning of our inclusio. All about traditions of men. And then it goes on with the in-between material. And we read this in Colossians 2.9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him, meaning in Yeshua, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Mashiach. Verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. Now, I highlighted that because the better translation, such as the New American Standard has it, is he has wiped out the certificate of debt. That's what he's wiped out. There was a debt that Yeshua paid for us because we sinned. And he's wiped out that certificate of debt that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And now we come to the passage in question, which is getting midway into the the bookends, in, in, in the in-between. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regard, uh, regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance, remember the embodiment, is of Mashiach. Now, I want to draw your attention before we continue. Look at what Paul says here, and I've highlighted it. Let no one judge you. I want you to think about something in regard to this passage. We know there are men judging. That's not, that's not even up for debate. We can all agree on, no matter what side you fall on here, we can all agree there is judging going on here. My question is, is what is the basis of that judgment? See, for you to go out and to provide judgment, you must be drawing from a resource. You must be drawing from a law. And the question is, is what law is being drawn from here. Is it the law of God? Is that how they are judging? Or is it through the law of man? So I'm going to tell you something. This dramatically changes the whole context of the passage. Well, if you remember back in verse 8, you already know this answer. You already know the answer because Paul already specified. He didn't use the term law. He didn't use the term mosaic law. He didn't use the term commandments of God. He said the traditions of men. He already specified what law they are judging by. And interestingly enough, as we continue, Paul is going to revisit that reality as we get into this last part of the inclusio, this last bookend. 
In Colossians 2.18, we read this. Let no one judge you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Moving to verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Mashiach from the basic principles of the world, the very same terminology, and this is what I was saying, the same concept is now being delivered yet once again using the same terminology. Though you died with Mashiach from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? And what is he talking about regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern, uh, which concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men, not the commandments of God. You do not see here the law of Moses. You don't even see here just the, the simple term law. It is specific. He says, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So our first book in, in Colossians 2, 8, explicitly talking about the traditions and commandments of men. He goes through his material, which includes uh, verses 16 and 17, to end up in verses 20 through 23, Paul reiterating the exact same principle. And he frames up his context. He frames it up. We know exactly what he is talking about so that when we go here, when we go to verses 16 and 17, we know that the passage is all about what is called takanot or rabbinical ordinances or what we would call traditions of men. This is not dealing with biblical law. This is not dealing with the Torah. And I'm going to tell you, a distinction needs to be made. Let me further press the issue to prove to you that Paul is actually addressing rabbinical laws. Notice here, right at the beginning of the verse, he says, let no one judge you in food or in drink. Let no one judge you in these things. If you go back to the first century, to the days of Paul and Yeshua, the rabbis, the rabbis, they were imposing strict regulations in regard to what a coincidence, food and drink. Regulations, I will remind you, that do not exist within the Torah, within the law of God. Let me give you an example so that you have some perspective, so that you have historical context here so that you can understand exactly what Paul is conveying. And the example I'm going to give you comes from a commentary on the Talmud. If you're not familiar with the Talmud, it's just simply the jurisdiction of rabbinical law, the jurisdiction of commandments of men, as we would say it. And, and the way the rabbis look at this, just so you understand, they have the Torah, they love the Torah, but on top of the Torah... They placed the oral Torah, which now has been redacted, and it was redacted all the way back in 200 AD by Yehuda Hanasi, where they actually wrote down what is called the oral law, which eventually came to us in this compendium called the Talmud now. Well, I want you to listen to this commentary uh, from the Talmud on the Talmud in regard to food and drink. And keep in mind, what did Paul say in verse 21? Do not touch... Do not taste, do not handle. 
And this is in regard to exactly what he was dealing with, with food and drink. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Listen to this commentary. Foremost among the essentials of a well-cared-for body is cleanliness. It is not merely next to godliness, but a most important part of it. To wash the hands before touching food was strictly enjoined. Sanctify yourselves. Now, I want, I want you to pay very close attention here um, so that you can see that that example that I just gave to you where the Jews, they have the, the, the Torah. They have the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. And what they do is they put the oral Torah on top of it. And understand something. This is an important principle before we continue. Orthodox Judaism stands in the position, you cannot understand the Torah apart from the oral Torah. You cannot understand the Torah apart from the Mishnah or from the Talmud. And the Mishnah is the core component of the Talmud. You can't, it can't be done. And so with that, with that understanding, as we read this here, he says it is not merely next to godliness, but a most important, or then we go, sanctify yourselves. Okay, he's quoting scripture here. Yeah, the commentary is actually quoting Leviticus 11. And that's what it says in the Torah. The law says sanctify yourselves. But how do they understand that? How do they interpret that? Well, this is where the oral Torah comes up on top of it. They say, example given, washing the hands before the meal. And so Leviticus 11 says sanctify yourselves. And they say, ah, that means washing the hands before the meal. And then they quote the Torah again in Leviticus 11. Be ye holy. You know the statement, be ye holy as I am holy. And what does that mean? According to rabbinic tradition, washing after the meal. And then they give the Talmudic reference. Whoever eats bread without first washing his hands is as though he sinned with a harlot. Whoever makes light of the washing of his hands will be uprooted from the world. Do you know how serious of an offense this is? And so this is the problem. When the Jewish roots of our faith are ripped out from us, we don't feel the gravity and the weight of the things that are happening in the New Testament. They've been taken from us. The issue of washing hands was massive. It was massive in the first century. And keep in mind, there were many, 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 many Pharisaic believers in Yeshua. Many Pharisees were believers, were roaming around. And we know uh, even Acts 15 suggests this as well. So it's not like Yeshua came on the scene and Yeshua's disciples followed him and then all the Pharisees disappeared. There is no such thing. That's insane. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. He's the son of a Pharisee. This is a man who loved the traditions of his fathers. That's how, you know, you know Jews today, the, the beauty of it, when you actually investigate it, you realize it's not all about this, this set of rules and regulations per se. It's about identification as a Jew. It's very meaningful. You guys have traditions that you do in your families. They're very, very powerful. And they mean something to you. There's no difference in Judaism. With Jews, it's part of their identity. But what Paul realized, and read Philippians 3, and I don't want to get into this, and what I know the Jews who are in this generation are going to realize that their identity is actually in Yeshua. That's where the ultimate identity is. And so Paul, a Pharisee, and do you think it's a coincidence that Yeshua sends Peter, a nobody, untrained, untaught, 
to his people, and then he sends an expert in the Torah, a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, to the Gentiles. You cannot convince me that that was an accident. This was intentional. Look at the message that Paul is having to bring. It's extremely controversial among his own people. You don't wash your hands before you eat. You're to be uprooted from the world. And so feel the weight of this. He goes on. Whoever eats bread without scouring his hands is as though he eats unclean bread. So there's another concept here that you need to understand from traditional Judaism. If I didn't wash my hands and I touch my piece of bread, that bread is unclean. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Over and over again, we just keep looking at this. A person, continuing on, who despises the washing of the hands before a meal is to be excommunicated. And then quoting Talmud. There is even a benediction prescribed for the purpose. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by thy commandments and commanded us concerning the washing of the hands. And then continuing. The cleanliness applied also to vessels. So this is not just about food. This is vessels used during a meal. Rinse the cup before drinking and after drinking. Talk a note. Rinse the cup before drinking and after. And what is Paul talking about when you get in Colossians 2.16? Food and drink. He's dealing with rabbinical Judaism. He's dealing with the oral law, these, these traditions of man that have been placed on top of the Torah. In fact, if I was to bring here, here you see, you know, where, where's my Torah here? Right here. Right here. This much of the Bible is the Torah. If I were to bring the Babylonian Talmud in here, it would stand higher off of here than I can even reach. Just to give you an example. I want to be very clear on something. The Apostle Paul never taught against the Torah. No, you just cannot find it. If Paul's going to be accused of anything, and he's accused of everything... I mean, let's just be clear. Paul has taken, second to Yeshua, Paul has taken the most abuse of any Jew that I know in the world that has ever existed. Paul has been abused. And I say abused because he's been misrepresented so many different ways, you can't count them. Right? One of the ways is that all he taught against the Torah. I just had a a rabbinic commentary uh, that came across my desk uh, in regard to, this was an Orthodox Jew, uh, just uh, bewailing Paul and all the anti-Torah stuff that he did. This is what he sees because he looks at how Christianity is presenting him. But I want to be clear. The only thing that Paul can truly be accused of is following his rabbi. And I don't mean Gamliel. Rabbi Yeshua. And I challenge you, when you start to go through and you start to look at the writings of Paul in his epistles, go study the ministry of Yeshua as recorded in the New Testament, and you will find time after time he is literally teaching identical principles using the same verbiage that Yeshua used. Let me give you an example. Because you're going to see what Paul is teaching in Colossians 2.16 that was something Yeshua already dealt with. Going to Matthew 15, verse 1, then the scribes and Pharisees, It's important you understand who we're dealing with here. Who were from Yerushalayim came to Yeshua saying, why do your disciples transgress? What do they transgress? The tradition of the elders. Notice they didn't say the Torah. 
the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Again, it's a big deal, and you know the weight of it. That person should be uprooted, according to Orthodox Jewish thought. Moving on to verse 3. Yeshua answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Now think about that statement. I'm not going to get into it because that, that's, that's many messages in and of itself. But I will tell you this, one of the tragedies of the oral law, which let me preface this statement. There is much beauty. There is much beautiful history of the Jewish people and the mentality of how they reconcile things. There's much beautiful folklore and, and culture involved. Precious things involved with the Talmud. But there is a mountain higher than I can reach of commandments of men that are being applied on top of the Torah. And what happens, what has happened in traditional Judaism is that the focus turns away more so from the Torah and onto the rabbis. The focus goes upon the commandments and traditions of men. That gets more weight than the Torah itself. And this is what's Yeshua calling on the carpet, but in defense of Judaism, with all due respect, Christianity is doing the exact same thing. They're not, then why are they celebrating pagan festivals instead of God's festivals? Why are they celebrating Sunday instead of Saturday? That is a tradition of man. Feel the weight, the persuasiveness of these traditions. So nobody can start pointing fingers around here. Certainly Yeshua has the authority to do that. So we just rest on where Yeshua is at. And Yeshua comes out and he rebukes them because you're saying you're neglecting the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition. And he goes on and gives them an example of exactly how they're doing that. At which point later he says, hypocrites, and we read this in our last message, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jumping to verse 9. And in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Does this sound familiar? Because this is exactly how Paul closed out his inclusio. Which do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, in verse 21, which concern things which Paris using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. It's dealing with rabbinic... I want to share just a small tidbit of this. Because this is really going to blow your mind. And this will give you more of an insight of where rabbinic tradition has gone and the commandments have gone uh, in regard to literally trying to put this massive layer over the Torah. To what extreme? Small pieces of skin which are peeling off around the fingernail or any part of the body, but which are still connected, may not be pulled or cut off with an instrument by hand or even with the teeth. Nonetheless, if one, if the end of the nail has become detached for most of its width and is therefore close to coming off and is causing or is one is afraid that it will cause pain, it may be removed either by hand or with the teeth, but not with an instrument. And so a tweezers, which actually could make the job much easier than, you know, me gnawing on, on, on my, on my finger, Rabbinic tradition says, well, you, you could do that only in rare ex, you know, exceptions, but you can't use the tweezers because that would constitute you're picking up a tool and tools are used for melacha. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see, you see where this is being taken? 
Let me continue. Anyone washing himself on Shabbat should take care to avoid squeezing water out of his hair. And so you, 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 you can chuckle, but Orthodox Judaism takes this stuff very seriously. One thing I appreciate is they fear God and they revere the Shabbat. It's powerful. But it's got to the point where my hair's wet. I want to squeeze it out. That, well, that would be work. That would constitute, you know, you read the Torah, you don't get this. This is, you don't get any of this. This is not, this is getting off a point. This is getting off to what the Lord uh, has established. And this is why Yeshua had to rebuke the Pharisees. Continuing on, let me show you this. If upon opening an electric refrigerator on Shabbat or Yom Tov, which is a festival, One finds that the internal light has automatically been switched on. This does not make it forbidden to eat the food inside, but one should consult a requalified rabbinic authority about what to do with regard to closing the door of the refrigerator again. So you open it up and the light came on. Now what do we do? We got to get it. We got to call the rabbis because if I close the door, that would constitute work. And there's more to it than, than what I'm even presenting in the fact that, well, the light came on. And that's creating part of the problem here. In fact, we could go on with other things and talking about there's no flipping on light switches on Shabbat. Again, taking very seriously or pushing elevator buttons. They're not going to do that on Shabbat. In fact, uh, it, gets, it gets to the point where a rabbi, not, that, not too long ago, um, uh, there was a very controversial ruling on whether it is lawful to pick one's nose on Shabbat. Now, again... The issue wasn't whether or not picking the nose. The issue was, do I pull the hair out? Did I pull a hair out? And see, there are other uh, rabbinic traditions that are on top of the Torah in regard. You have to use not a hard brush on Shabbat, but you have to use a soft brush lest you pull a hair out and profane the Shabbat. Okay? And we could go on and on with this. Understand this has been ripped from you. We do not have historical context when we are reading the Apostle Paul. And these are things, interestingly enough, that Yeshua had to deal with. Rabbinical traditions of man and the interpretation of, their interpretation of the Torah. He had to go toe-to-toe with them. Let me just give you this example. Luke 13, 13. And Yeshua laid hands on her. This was a woman that had been bent over for 18 years, bound by Satan. And immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Yeshua had healed on the Shabbat. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. And so again, getting back into this tradition, this is what Yeshua had to deal with. He had to set the record straight. And in Matthew 12, we mentioned this. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The Lord healed this woman who had been bound by Satan. And he did it on the Shabbat because it encompasses the meaning of Shabbat. You know, Shabbat is prophetic. It's all about deliverance. What Yeshua is doing here makes scripturally perfect sense. And just think about, what did the children of Israel come out of Egypt on Shabbat? They came out on Shabbat. They were delivered on the Sabbath. See, that's a prophetic picture. And this is why it's important to know the feast and to understand what all this means. 
So as we look at this passage, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are shadow of things to come. Understand the whole context is dealing with traditions and commandments of men being placed upon in addition to the Torah, being utilized as a way that this is the only way we're going to understand the Torah. And so with that said, everyone rise. We are going to do our battle cry. Today we will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. We will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight. And we will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. And let us pray the prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The music team can come up and let's close in prayer. Abba Father, we give you praise and glory. We give you praise and glory for your son, the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for sending our rabbi to teach us. And Lord Yeshua, you said yourself, it's good that you go away. If you would go away, you would send your Holy Spirit to us. And the Holy Spirit would teach us in conjunction to testify of your name and to testify of truth. And, and the Holy Spirit is called, the Ruach HaKodesh is called the Spirit of Truth, the Ruach Amet. Lord, we pray for that spirit of truth. Lord, we pray for humble hearts. We pray that your light, the light of your word, shine in our hearts and cast out the darkness, Lord. And there's none of us here that are beyond, that that are perfect. There's none of us here that haven't fallen. And I think it's pretty safe to say uh, there's none of us here that don't have work to do. We have work to do. We have a lot of work to do. And uh, Lord, we ask for your help. There's bitterness, wrath, immorality. If people have addictions uh, that are unclean, uh, leprosy of the mouth, uh, whatever the case may be, Lord, I pray that you put your conviction upon us and we want to testify. We do not want to blaspheme the holy name of Yeshua, going out, claiming to be bondservants and living like wicked men. We pray for the cleansing, Lord. I pray for forgiveness of sins for the people. We pray for healing, supernatural healing, Lord. And we confess that you are the great physician. We confess that you have the ability to heal us. You have the ability uh, simply to say, your sins are forgiven and we will be healed. And I love the centurion who professed, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house under my roof. Speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Lord, we call upon that in faith, confessing it with our mouth. Speak the word from your throne as you sit at the right hand of the Father of lights. You speak the word and we confess we will be healed. We will be forgiven. Help us to be better witnesses for your name, Lord. In the mighty name of Yeshua, we pray.